recently in the past few weeks, um, we have maybe somehow lost a very important item in our household. Uh, we went up to uh, my in-law's cottage, Memorial Day weekend, and we know for sure that my one son, Kendrick, uh, we brought his glasses with us. But when we came home, the glasses didn't make the trip. And we couldn't find them. And we were like, maybe they're at the cottage. And so we left. And, and as we left, we, we called our in-laws. And we called you know, my uh, brother and sister-in-laws. And we we're like, hey, if you see uh, you know, Kenny's glasses, let us know. So they looked all over. No luck. So I'm like, well, maybe it's in the car. So I've, I've turned both Courtney's car and my car upside down and inside out. They've never been cleaner than this, these past few days, right? Looking for these glasses. Maybe it's in the house then. It's not in the car. Maybe it's in the house somewhere. So his whole room got cleaned. We, we looked underneath the, the sofa. We looked underneath the, you know, the cushions of the sofa. We're like, maybe Ari took them and put them in the, the drawer with our pots and pans. We, we can't find these glasses, but yet there's this moment for us where we're like, our son really needs glasses. Uh, about a week and a half ago, he officially like totally removed all the training wheels on the first try. And we're like, Kenny Lamar, two wheels with no glasses. And he can't see that great. He's that kid, like if the TV is, is this, he's like here. Because he still can't see. And as I was thinking about this moment for us of like, what are we going to do? We have some old pairs of glasses, but they're not as strong as what they need to be. What are we going to do? I remember just yesterday, actually, getting a text message from my mother-in-law, and she said, you'll never guess what we found. She's like, the glasses. And I was like, praise Jesus, you have heard our prayers from the deep pits of Kenny's struggles. They were deeply buried underneath a bin underneath all these cords and underneath all of these other things up at the cottage. And nobody saw them in the bin because they were so deeply buried and so deeply, in a way, lost. I find it intriguing that no matter what it is in our lives that we deem as lost, we go to extraordinary lengths to find it. I've gone through extraordinary lengths to find the lost TV remote. Anybody else? I've gone through extraordinary lengths to find my lost car keys. I've gone through extraordinary lengths to find something that was lost. Why do we search so hard for the things in life that we believe matter so much? Why do we search so hard for it? I mean, maybe for you it's glasses like it is for us or car keys, or, or maybe for some of us it's those old photos that you're trying to remember the good old times with. What about searching for the lost treasures of our families deeply buried in chests or safes? We search so hard for things that are lost, but do we search just as hard for lost souls around us? Is there an urgency and a burden in our lives for the lost among us? It led me to start thinking of the question, what is Jesus looking for, searching for, and desiring right now even? Like if Jesus was sitting right here and I asked him that question, Jesus, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? What would you be desiring right now? I truly believe that his answer would be the same today as it would have been hundreds of years ago. I'm, I'm searching and desiring and looking for the lost among you. 
to just come home. We're in this series called Kingdom Culture where we're looking at the kingdom parables that Jesus taught and teaches on. And today we're going to be looking at actually, uh, it's called like essentially the, the parables of the lost. But what it is going to be is three stories that I'm going to talk about today. Sound good? And so it's a series of these three parables, the three stories that Jesus talks about. And in all three of these, we see an urgency in finding what was lost. Finding what was lost. In all three of these stories, there is somebody who is searching for something or someone that was lost. So the three parables are told because I think Jesus is trying to make a habit and make a point that there's a big celebration or party when the lost things are found. But he's talking and he's engaging with all of the wrong people. I mean, if you were to even look at how this chapter starts out, it's talking about there's tax collectors and notorious sinners that are sitting around listening and engaging with Jesus. All of the wrong people, right? Jesus is this religious teacher, and all of the wrong people are the ones surrounding him, flocking to him, and following him. In the very next verse, it says the Pharisees, and this idea that the Notorious sinners and tax collectors, it made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, and he was even eating with them. Oh, can you believe the audacity of this Jesus? And then he starts to talk, and this is what it says in verses, um, I'm going to start in verse 4 here. If a man has a hundred sheep, and uh, sorry, this is Luke 15, verse 4. If a man has 100 sheep and one gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So here's Jesus, and he's telling the story of the lost sheep. It's probably a story if you grew up in the church, you've heard many, many times before. That the, the shepherd will leave the 99, we just sang, right, like to go chase after the one. And you're like, that math doesn't make sense to most of us, right? You're going to leave 99 to go find one. But what if, because in our mind, we do addition, right? It, it, we're like, oh, he needs 100. That's our goal. We're like 100. It's a great big number, triple digits. We celebrate it. But what if, what if he leaves the 99 who have, who have stayed with him, who have obeyed and listened to his voice and commands, and he goes and chases after the one, not so that he has 100, but so that there's a reality that there are zero lost sheep. What if he's not chasing after 100, but he's chasing after zero? Oh, man, that's a good number. Zero lost. Zero. And the whole point of this parable is that there's only one difference between the lost sheep and the 99. That one was lost. It's not that that one was bigger or healthier or that one could get him more money if he sold it. The reality was, was that sheep was lost. I don't know if you know this or not, but like sheep are really dumb. They're stupid. They can't save themselves. 
they never could and they never will be able to. They can't find the shepherd on their own. He needs to leave to go find the one so that there's zero loss. In this first parable, Jesus is starting to flip the script that God is chasing and searching for his flock and for his people. But then he doesn't stop. He continues on. The parable of a lost coin, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Lost coin. Has anybody ever lost a coin or change? Anybody? Yeah, thank you, Todd. Thank you, right? How many of you guys, the first thing that you do when you're like, oh man, I lost this quarter. The first thing that you do, tell me if I'm right, you turn on every light in your house and you start to move all of your furniture just to find that one quarter, right? That's what my five and four-year-old do. Like quarters right now are so treasurable to them because they can go to their school and get a gumball with their quarter, right? So no matter who's taking them, whether it's my wife or I, when they get out of the car, can I have a quarter? I mean, sure, here you go. And Cashton likes to ask mom before he leaves the house and then dad before he gets out of the car, so he has two quarters. And then he stuffs the gumballs in either cheek of his and he's already got those cute squishable cheeks already and so now they're filled, right, with gum. Barely can breathe because he's chomping on two pieces of gum. The lost coin, though, this lady lights a candle. She lights a lamp. And she sweeps while looking for it. Isn't this also possibly what Jesus is talking about? That isn't this how the church should pursue a lost person too? That we should trust in the light of the Holy Spirit to lead us. And, and as we are sifting through life and walking with him as his light leads us in this world that we sweep and we clean and we try to find the one lost. Not so that we can have all 10 coins, but maybe, just maybe, so that there is zero lost coins. I think we've read so many times, I'm so guilty of this, reading these parables and thinking to myself, he's chasing after 100 sheep. She's chasing after 10 coins. But what if they're, they're not chasing after the, the big number, but they're chasing after the zero? That there is zero lost sheep, zero lost coins in their lives. Isn't that what we're called to chase after too? Zero? And I love what Jesus says at the end of both of these parables. What happens when the lost is found? It says a party happens. A party happens. What's so interesting is as I've had just different conversations with some of my friends, with uh, just other people, it's always interesting when people talk about like religious or Christians, right? They're like, you guys are just weird. Like you don't have fun. You're all like uppity and you got like, you're all stiff. Or I, I don't know about you, but when I read certain texts like this, I, I truly believe that Jesus was a party animal. Like, I, that's my type of Jesus, right? Like his first miracle happens at a what? A wedding. He's partying. He's like, dude, we're going to dance. I, I think he danced. I like dancing. So Jesus likes dancing too, I think. 
He's gonna, they're at a wedding feast, like a banquet. Like he's, he's a party animal. And here's the best part. Jesus invites everybody to the party. He's like, the door is wide open. Come and party with me. Oh, you're messy? Sweet. We, you can party with us. Hey, you have messed up baggage with you? Great. Leave it at the door, but come party with me. Hey, you're a tax collector. You're the sinner. You're this outcast. That's awesome. I still want to have a party with you. I truly believe that Jesus is in the business of not just meeting people where they're at, but having a party when they are found. So there's no longer one that's lost, but now zero. Jesus, I believe, is in the business of having parties and celebrations. And he doesn't stop there. I mean, searching and finding lost animals is great. Searching and finding lost treasures and and money or coins is awesome. But what is Jesus really searching for? What's he looking for? What's he desiring right now? And then he shares this last parable. The parable of the lost son. The prodigal son. It's this moment as Jesus starts to paint this picture where he says the father has two sons. And the one son comes to him and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. Totally countercultural, totally inappropriate for the son to even ask this question and even demand it. But here we see the father says, okay, son, I'll, I'll give it to you. So in this moment, this father would essentially split up his estate and he'd give the son his inheritance. He, he says, son, you have a choice and you... I'll honor your choice, your decision, and I'll give you what you're asking. And the son flees, and he goes off. And we know the story, right? Like, he lives this radical, reckless, sinful life. He goes to what essentially would be like our Las Vegas, Sin City. He has the the honeys on his right. He has his homies on his left. And he's enjoying the time of his life. But then there's this moment, there's this moment, money runs out, his buddies leave him because he's no longer this life of the party because he can't pay for it, all the honeys that were hanging out with him, all of the the sex and drugs and alcohol that he was enjoying probably is, is now gone, and look at what it says in verse 17. When he, the son, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired servants. Essentially what happens is this younger son is not functioning as he should be. He comes to his senses. He realizes what he has done. And now it dawns on him that even my dad's hired servants get treated better than what I am doing right now. He's eating with the pigs, which as a Jew, pigs are unclean. You can't touch them. You can't associate with them. So he found a very low-paying job where he is feeding pigs, and as he's feeding the pigs, he's essentially kind of scraping a little bit off the top to feed himself. 
It sounds pretty disgusting to me. In this moment, he's like, I'll go back to my dad and I will just say, like, I've sinned against you. I know I've sinned against you. So don't take me back as a son, but take me back as one of your hired servants. And I love this. It doesn't say that he thought back to his, his, uh, his dad's house. It doesn't say that he thought back to his community. It doesn't say that he thought back to his buddies, but it says that he, he remembered his father. He thought of his father. I believe there's probably some of us, a lot of us, or maybe people that we know, that have maybe strayed away from the father. And when we start to realize and come to our senses, do we think of the father and his great love, or do we think of this idea of, oh, well, I'll just go back to church for a little bit and check my box. I'll just start to hang out with better Christian friends and I'll, I'll become better. I think the question for me in this begins to start to ask is, are we thinking of the Father when we return back to him? Or are we thinking maybe this idea of a luxury lifestyle or even this church that we used to go to or even just these good Christian friends? I think that Jesus is illustrating here that we have to turn back to the Father, not anything else. There's nothing else that will deliver us besides the love of the Father, the radical love of the Father that sent his Son to die for us. So when we come to our senses and we come back to the Father, it's only because we understand the radical, intimate, deep love that the Father has. And he continues on, 20 through 24. This is what it says now. So... He returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Pause. Cultural context here. The father probably was sitting on his porch, sees the son a long way off. Can I just remind us, now, back in those days, they didn't have jeans or shorts, but daddy was wearing a tunic. A, a tunic. There's no long johns under the tunic. And so for daddy as a grown man to literally see the sun far off, and it doesn't say he waits for him to come, dad just takes off running. This is so against every cultural norm and rule, and the dad doesn't care. Why? Because he is overwhelmed with the love that his son is coming home. And it goes on, and it says this. His son, uh, he ran, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, again, this is that practiced uh, apology, right? Like, father. I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. The son is stripping his identity away. He's trying to say, I'm not even worthy to be kissed or embraced. I don't know why you pursued me down this long driveway, but I'm not even worthy to be called your blood and your son anymore. And before he could even finish this apology, the father interrupts and he says to his servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. 
Kill the calf we've been fattening. We have to celebrate with a feast and a party. Why? Because my son, this son of mine, was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party must begin. Can I just say, the moment the dad embraces the son, the relationship changes. It's restored. The son is coming to him saying, I'm not even worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of being found or embraced. I don't, I'm not worthy of any of it. I just, I'm asking for a job. And the dad says, you're not going to get a job. You are my son. We're going to have a party. We're going to feast. You were lost and you are found. What I thought was dead is now home. We're having a party. We're having a party. There's so much deep love for the son. And when the party happens we understand that there's true repentance. It's almost as if Jesus here is saying that this is what it's like for my father. This is maybe, just maybe, Jesus has given us a taste of what it's like for the heavenly father when one of his sons or daughters returns home. And I think we have to understand what it means when it says repentance. You see, our culture has this idea that repentance is this idea of like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm mixed up in some stuff. I'm doing some stuff. And like, I should turn back to God. And, and, and he's over there. And like, that's a great idea. But this is really enjoyable. Uh, just, just a little bit longer in this addiction is not going to hurt me. What, one more drink is not that bad. Another hit of that drug really isn't going to impact me. You know what? This relationship really isn't as bad as what it seems. We're just friends. I know it's wrong, but I'll come to it later. I'll, I'll, I'll repent later. And our culture has said, like, just say those words, right? Like, I'll, oh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. I won't do it again. But yet we, we're still standing right here. The word repentance literally means to do a full 180 to turn what you are doing and to walk back the way you came. It's this idea that if I live in LA and I say I'm going to move to New York, I can't just say I'm going to move to New York. That doesn't make me a New Yorker, right? You following? In order for me to become a New Yorker, I have to not just say, I'm going to leave LA. I have to begin to pack my bags. And then I got to buy a plane ticket. And I hope there's no delays or, or cancellations in my flight. And then I got to take my bags and I got to board the plane. And I got to sit in my seat. I got to buckle my buckle. I got to pray that this captain knows where he's going. And then when I land in New York, I grab my bags and I set up shop in New York. That's what makes me a New Yorker, right? Maybe not. Let's try this again. If I'm in L.A., if I want to be in New York, I have to physically do what? Move. Move. It's not just about what you say. It's about how you are willing to make a change in your life to follow after what God has called you into. Repentance is not just the words. It's the physical actions of turning a whole 180 and walking back into his presence. 
You can't just talk about it. You can't just mention it. You can't just dream about it. You must physically change the direction you are going to walk back to the house of the Heavenly Father. That's a good place for an amen. amen. Come on, somebody. If you discover what's going on in heaven, if we truly understand what's going on in heaven, we'll discover how things are supposed to be on earth. If we remember what it's like for the angels in heaven when a sinner returns That's what it's supposed to be like on earth. When we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means when one of our lost brothers or sisters comes home, there should be a party to celebrate that. When we discover what it's like on heaven, we discover what it's supposed to be on earth. And Jesus was declaring that heaven was having a great noisy party every time a single sinner saw the light and began to follow God's way. But when was the last time you or I remember feeling a genuine sense of urgency for the loss, the non-believers in your life to know Jesus? When was the last time you felt a personal burden for the coworker that sits next to you that you know doesn't know Jesus to come and know Jesus? When was the last time that you felt the urgency to talk to your husband or your wife who refuses to know Jesus about God's radical love for them? When was the last time that there was a deep burden on your shoulders as a parent for a lost son or daughter to come home? Do you remember what it feels like? Has the thought of them spending eternity away from Jesus, has that given us this uneasy feeling that we don't like? Because if it hasn't given you that uneasy feeling, it should. It should. The question that we have to ask and face today is, do we believe people living separate from Jesus truly are lost? Or do we just they'll find their way somehow. Do we believe that people living separate from Jesus are truly lost? Have we been okay with actually defining sin as what it is? Sin is not this idea of, oh, well, we just break a few rules here and there. No, that's not sin. Sin is the the living counter to the Father's will. Living counter to the Father's will. And our culture has said that our liberal neighbor does this because they're living so far off from the Father's will. But our crazy, super right, conservative uncle on the right does this too. Sin is living counter to the Father's will. Our world does exactly the same thing that happened in the garden. Go back, Genesis, in in the book of Genesis, the very beginning What happens? Adam and Eve are chilling in this garden. And when we think of this garden, we're like, oh my word, like it's this beautiful, like Frederick Meyer garden type of thing. The Garden of Eden is estimated to be maybe about double the size of Rhode Island. It's huge, actually. And God says, the one thing not to do is this. And then they're walking and it's a simple question from the serpent. Did God really say that? Yeah, but like, 
Really? Did he really mean that? It's a simple twist. It's a very simple twist. It, trying to twist and distort what God said to fit an agenda or their own desires and own will. Did God really say that? God's heart and his desire has always been for his people. From the very beginning of time in the garden to the very end of time in the garden city, Revelation is going to be for his people. He has never changed his heart's desire. His desire is for his people to be with him in his glory forever and ever. But do we share the same urgency that Jesus had for the lost among us? And for some of us, you might be sitting there, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because there is a reality that there's probably some of us sitting here today that says, I don't have that urgency. I don't share that urgency, Kyle. Like, I'm found, I know where I'm going, I don't have that urgency for the lost. I'm not an evangelist. Well, not all of us are called to be an evangelist, but we're all called to live evangelistically. How do you get that desire? How do you get that urgency? There's another character in the story of the lost son, the older brother. And the older brother, as this party happens, is found not at the party. He retreats. He goes somewhere else. And when the father finds him and says, why are you not at this party? Your brother that was lost is now found. He's like, dad, I've done everything right. I stayed in your house. I followed your rules. I was a good boy. I did nothing wrong. And you're throwing a party for him? He spent everything you gave him. He spent it all. And now you just welcome him back with arms wide open. He sold off his Half of your estate that you split up for more money, he, he's gone. And now you're welcoming him back. And that means that what I probably was going to get is now cut in half again. He's mad. He doesn't have the urgency to party like the father does. How does the older brother who has stayed in the church, who has followed all of the legalistic rules that we would have tried to apply, who has done everything correct, they grew up, they knew the stories, they, they said the right prayers, they got baptized at the right times, and they got everything done correctly. How do they get the urgency to go and find their lost brother? Well, they also have to turn back to the father's heart because they're lost too. They're lost in the house. They're lost idolizing an achievement over a deep personal relationship and love of the Father. They've got so caught up in idolizing this achievement. I've been the perfect Christian. I've been the perfect son. I did everything right. We've grown to make this idol of it rather than to, to live out of the deep love of the Father. What is Jesus today? What is Jesus looking for, searching for, and desiring right now? We're told that Jesus and the Father are still chasing after are still pursuing lost hearts and souls. That's his final moment here. He delegates his power to his followers, to his disciples, to go and participate in the mission. But we get so obsessed over this idea of knowing. 
knowing when the last moment's going to be, knowing how much time I have left, knowing how do I do all of this the, the right way, knowing the correct or the best use of the right words. We get so obsessed over knowing that we forget that we're called into a mission. As we close today, as Katie's going to come up, I, I want to share just one or two more things here. In the process of getting so obsessed with knowing that we forget that we're called into an actual mission that is ongoing. I remember watching this college football coach, a, a young college, a small college, and he looked at his, his team. They just got done with two days, which basically is like two practices in one day. If you want to know what hell on earth feels like, go participate in one. And as he gets done and his players are exhausted, some of them are throwing up. They can't believe they just went through all this and they have to go back and do it again the next day. He asks this very simple question. Are you willing to sprint when the distance is unknown? Are, are you willing to sprint when the distance is unknown? And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's a really good quote from a, uh, a coach. I should use that sometime. Like in my five-year-old, when I was coaching my five-year-olds for soccer, I was like, boys, are you willing to sprint when the distance is unknown? And they're like, I don't know what that means, dad. And I was like, I know. You will one day. Are you willing to sprint when the distance is unknown? Are you willing to go the distance when you cannot see the finish line? When you start, are you willing to chase after the goal when you can't see the true value or ultimate worth of it right away? Will you chase after lost souls even though you don't know how much time you have or how much they have left? Does their eternal destiny matter to you as much as it matters to him? God, I believe, is asking us to sprint even when the distance is unknown. I don't know how much time I have left on this earth, just like you don't know how much time you or anybody around you does. Are you willing to sprint after lost souls when the distance is unknown? This past week, I had the chance. Uh, I canceled meetings on Wednesday, and I said, I'm going to just do something. I'm going to drive three and a half hours down to NTS camp. And so I drive three and a half hours down, I show up right after lunch, and they're getting ready for team comps. And I got to see some of our, our students and, and Steve and, and Dallas, who was there as leaders, and just watching what God was doing. And that night was a night where Derek, the, the speaker, I have a great respect for Derek. I've, had, I've known him for many years, had great conversations with him, and there's pivotal moments in my life that Derek has spoken into. Derek gives this invitation to the gospel. And they have these letters all on the front of the stage and in the very back of the sanctuary. And, and he said, if tonight is that night where you are lost and you are coming home, and he lays out the gospel and he invites kids to come up and, and to just make this public declaration. You see this picture up there, but here's what's interesting is all of those holes represent a student or adult that made a decision that night that they are going to place their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. Hundreds of students, we're talking incoming sixth graders through just graduated students walking up to the front. It doesn't matter what my friend, my girlfriend, my camp crush that I met two days ago thinks about me. I'm going to walk up and I'm going to push this little hole through this, this cardboard. And it's a public declaration saying, I'm putting everything I have in trusting Jesus. Why does it matter? 
Can I just share that as I was there for just literally, I got there right around 12 and I left at 9.30, nine hours. Came home right around 1.30 a.m. Nine hours there. Gen Z is hungry for a living God. Why does youth ministry and why does kids ministry matter is because that generation is starving for truth. And they're seeking him and finding him. Are we willing to chase, run with them after a God who has pursued us for so long as well? And as I was sitting there, I remember having conversations with John, our center pastor. And he invited me just to try something. And I was like, okay. We all know somebody. We all know somebody who is lost. We all know somebody who is searching. We all know somebody who just needs a simple invitation, maybe. We all know somebody who God has been speaking to you or speaking to your heart, and maybe it's just right here in this moment, and he is saying, are you willing to sprint after them when the distance is unknown? You don't know how long it might be that you might have to talk with them and pray for them, but are you willing to sprint with th for them and after them when you don't know the distance? And during this last song, here's what I want to invite you to do. It's uncomfortable. I don't care. There's little sheets of paper and markers. During this last song, I want you to walk up to the front and grab a, a marker and grab a piece of paper. And, and at this stage, I want you to write down that name of the person that God is inviting you to, to sprint after with him, to chase after, to not give up on, to continually run when the distance is unknown. And when you're done, I, I want you to put the marker back or just leave it on the front here. And I want you to say a little prayer over that name. And then I want you to leave it right here on the altar. Because what you're saying is, God, I'm leaving that name at the altar and I'm asking you. I'm asking you to lead the sprint with me that you would run with me, that you would chase after them with me. I'm going to submit them to you. And then after, after the service, later today or on Monday, I'm going to collect the names and I'm, I'm going to send them out to our prayer team. And we're going to pray for these names every day. Every day. Because eternity matters. It matters to him and it's going to matter to us. So I want to pray for us. And during this next song, when God leads you to, walk up, write down that name, and don't leave the name until you've prayed for them. If you need to sit down here for 10 minutes and pray for them, sit down here for 10 minutes and pray for them. God's invited us into a mission, and we get to do it. So let's join him in doing that.
Holy Spirit, we come before you and we just ask that right now in this moment, that as you are stirring, as you are moving, as you are asking us, Lord, to participate with you, to chase and sprint even when the distance is unknown, God, I ask that right here, right now, that you would bring that person to our mind. Maybe bring their face to our mind. Maybe write their name on our hearts, Lord, that we would then walk up to the front and write down their name. And Lord, I ask as we lay their name before you that you would just have your way, that your spirit would abundantly fall on them, that they would hear you or see you in a new tangible way today. And God, I ask that right now, if we are just struggling to think of a name, Lord, I pray that this week that you would give us an opportunity to have a relationship, a conversation with somebody who is lost. Make it so abundantly clear that this is the person that you're inviting us to sprint after, Lord. Chase after with you. So, Lord, we just ask right now, Lord, that you would have your way. That you would come and your spirit would fall fresh on us. And so, Lord, we just come before you. And all we can say, Lord, is this. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Come.